and welcome to episode 7 of Wavelength, the official Brave Wave podcast. And it's been a while since we um, recorded an episode. And, well, basically we, we didn't know what we want to do with the podcast and we didn't want to just release um, filler episodes. So now we have a better idea, but let me introduce... Um, our guests for this episode. I have Marco Guardia, the um, mixing engineer, co-director with me on Brave Wave. Hi. hi. Oh, this is Omar. Oh, I have to say hi. Hi. <laughs> yeah. And I have Benjamin Rivers, um, game developer. He made Home, a horror game that's on PC, PlayStation 4, Vita, iOS, and he just recently released a new game that he'll probably be talking about it. Hello, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. So, for the past, um, I don't know, I think since August, um, I suddenly got the idea of wanting to build a BC because I wasn't happy with the performance of Adobe Lightroom on my Mac Mini, and I started reading more about... uh, BCs, um, building BCs and all of that. And then I built one. And as I was like breathing on what to buy and all of that, the the build slowly went from like, this is a Windows machine, mostly for Lightroom to this is a gaming desktop because I've never actually had a gaming desktop before. I, I bought laptops, gaming laptops, which aren't really good to have as main machines, I think. So for the past few years, I really haven't been playing a lot or paying that much attention to new games or even older ones. I usually just play one game every few months. So with this new gaming BC, I suddenly got back to playing a lot more games. And in my free time, instead of uh, watching TV or reading a book, I would mostly be playing games. And because of this, I've been going to you, Marco, a lot and just Talking right. about all kind of things, every game, like and almost every game that I played this year, uh, uh, something that you uh, have experience, uh, have uh, played already. So we got to the point of not just talking, like chatting about them, but um, I mean, with Final Fantasy fifteen, I was sending super long yeah. voice notes <laughs> in our chatting application of choice. So at one point, you just told me, well. We should just have a podcast to talk about all of this. And it made sense. And at the same time, uh, I, I started talking to Ben as well. Uh, Final Fantasy Fifteen. as much as I didn't like it, it was a good way for me to just start talking about game design and just games and all of that with Ben. And it was the same thing. Sometimes- Which, disclaimer, I haven't actually played. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. all my complaints and my bitching is just from like watching my wife play so i just want people to know that i'm just talking out of my ass when i talk about final fantasy <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that's fair that's fine the funny thing is um like some, sometimes ben would uh, like ask me like a single line question and i would record like a 10 minutes rant basically exactly yeah exactly <laughs> so i mean I just thought it would be a good chance to just have uh the same uh, idea which is a bi-weekly podcast because all of us are, um, well, honestly, we're just busy to, to have a weekly podcast. So bi-weekly is better for all, for all of us. And it would just give us a chance to talk about games instead of just 
typing tons of stuff, which is fine, which uh, we will continue doing. But uh, it's just it's just fun to have an outlet where we can speak our mind. So exactly, and we're all narcissistic enough to think that everyone wants to listen to this. So. Exactly, yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think I think the best thing about this episode, like I I, I know it, like right now, the best thing is gonna be people actually hearing my complaints and hearing my voice when I talk about Final Fantasy 15 because I was a huge asshole on Twitter and I mean it, the game just annoyed me so much that I just I just couldn't I just couldn't shut up about it and I mean I have a lot of drafts that I didn't publish I will never publish don't worry about it so um uh, I'm, I'm I look forward to all of that but um before we start talking about the games that we played this year since we're almost to 2017, I want to talk a little bit about our releases, the Brave Wave uh, schedule, what we're planning, what we released uh, recently, and I want to start with Shovel Knight. Um, it's it's an I don't know I don't I don't think it's an unconventional release, but a lot of people asked me why, like why do you have this line of soundtracks that. Like you have a page on and you're saying that you're just dedicated to the best of the best and you have a a new game, basically. Shovel Knight is a is a mm-hmm. new game that was just released and um is it because you worked on it? Like is it, is this the, the, the main reason? And honestly no. Um It's a modern classic it as is. far as I'm concerned. It is. Yeah. And and, and, and to to do the whole criterion collection comparison again. Uh, they do release new movies and it's it's as far as I'm, i mean it's not our priority it's not mm. something that we we're probably going to do all the time but if it's if it's suited you know to the the type of releases that we're going to do on generation series then i i don't think that's a it's it's a problem because both in terms of the game itself and the soundtrack i think it's an instant classic i think it's something that's going to be uh, that people are going to enjoy years from now it's timeless it's timeless because it's um, um it's even even now, even though it's created now with a sound that is from the 80s, essentially, it's it's still enjoyed and has a huge success. And so that tells you right away that it's going to be a timeless classic. So I, I think there's not even, to me, there's not even any uh, any big uh, discussion or, or, or concern about that. It's just, it just seems so right. It never, I never even thought about it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. And I mean, Brave Wave is really just just an independent company. I mean, it's owned by us, and um, we can do whatever we want with it. And we're not obligated to 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 release something just because we did it. And the thing is, um, when I mean when when I saw Shovel Knight on Kickstarter the first time, and then I had the idea of asking um, Manami to compose for it. I I mean, I didn't really know much about the game. I just liked how it looked. Um, I just had a feeling and. We did this whole thing. We agreed to, to th- that Manami would work on it, and, and they announced it and everything. And um, I, I think that was in 2012, maybe maybe beginning mid 2013. And then in 2014, when I went to Bit Summit in Japan, it's an indie uh, gaming event. Um, I got to play the demo for the first time, and I honestly didn't like it. I just thought, hmm. Interesting. Um, looks like I don't oh, know. No, I think we have to cut this out, Mohammed. You think so? 
I'm just joking. <laughs> it's just a joke. Ah, well, I don't know. I mean, I've never. I, <laughs> no, of course, I, you can say that. No, no. I mean, I've never said this on Twitter or anywhere because you could just you could so easily take it out of context. But I mean, I I didn't really had any strong feelings about um, anything, and I don't really go to expos, and I don't like to play when there are uh, five people around me just looking at the screen. But I didn't really feel anything. I just thought, well, I mean, I could I I can never go to the future and see whether a game is good or not and then come back to the past and decide to work on it. So, I mean, I was fine with it. And, um, I mean, I, I never got a demo, like, for, for, from uh, the dev team. Uh, uh, they were kind enough to give us a lot of documents uh, and we delivered them to Manami on, on uh, like, screenshots and, and, and concept and everything. Uh, but I really didn't play anything um, except for that demo at Pit Summit in Japan. And, then the game got released and I played it and it just blew my mind. Like everything about it, uh, level design, music, uh, b- graphics, everything about it was just perfect to me. But the music especially was, um, I think it's, it's one of the best albums of, um, one of the best soundtracks, one of the best albums I've, I've ever bought. It's, uh, it's just amazing to me. And every single stage has the quality of a Mega Man stage theme to me. So mm-hmm. I went like from being not really sure whether the game is good or not to just basically worshiping it. And uh, this obviously, I mean, this this makes a lot of people think that we just did it because uh, we we worked on it, but absolutely not not the case. Um, and one cool thing: we- have you played the game, Ben? By the way, sorry, I have not to completion. I have only played. I'm not sure. I think the main overworld I've probably got about halfway through. Mm. I think. But is it your type of game? Or are you into these types of games, like plat- these kind of old-school 2D platformers? Not so much. It's weird because it's a game by all accounts I feel like I should love because I'm obviously just a huge fan of NES games, uh, and I talk about them all the time. Um, but for some reason, when Shovel Knight came out, I wasn't really into it. Um, but I think a lot of that has to do with context. It all depends on sort of what I'm into at the time. And I find for me, if I tend to miss a zeitgeist on something, it's hard to it's hard to jump back into it. Yeah, um, I got you, yeah. But, you know, I had friends here who and other developers who are like hardcore design specific game developers and players like they love platform games. They love really tight uh, action focused Mm -hmm. games because they just love being able to understand, um, you know, you can just see the quality of the design of it. And I totally respect the game for that. Uh, It's just one of those things that I look at it every time I see it or load it up. I go, oh, man, I love how this makes me feel like it's Ninja Gaiden or Mega Man or Castlevania or or I totally see what they're going here. And it's. Like I think it's a it's a really good game. It's just for some reason, I guess because I'm all about games with emotions and stupid stuff like that. I uh, when I play it, I play it for a little bit and I go, that was cool, but I never I never feel a love for it, and I don't know why. However, if okay. I was younger and this game had come out, just like I was when I played classic eight bit games, I'd be all over this. I just know it, right? Yeah, no, uh, I get it. I mean. Even when you go to things like Mega Man, there are people who like Mega Man strictly because of the weapons that you get, which means when a, when a new game comes out, has excellent level design, excellent music, but the weapons that you get are, you know, uninspired, not really fun to play with. A lot of people would actually kind of not like the game because of that. While with me, I usually just play with the, you know, the, the, the Mega Buster and only use the weapons against the bosses. And I focus on other stuff like music and level design. So I get it. Yeah. And one thing that was really 
well, I mean, it's my idea, so I can say that it's an amazing idea. Is that I? <laughs> so Alex came to me and he said, "So, what do you want to do for the um, the art for the front cover?" And I could have gone with the official art, which is good. I like it. And um, like with Street Fighter Two, uh, uh, we used obviously um, not custom art; it was uh, just classic Street Fighter Two art. Oh uh, yeah, with, so with good. Gaiden. Yeah, with Ninja Gaiden, we're doing the same. So I could have gone with that option with Shovel Knight, but I, I just got this idea. Why don't we ask? Uh, Hitoshi Ariga, the, the Pokemon and Mega Man illustrator, to make something for us. Uh, it just makes it made sense. Uh, he's uh, a, a friend of Manami. He, he, you know, Mega Man. Um, it would be just kind of really, really cool to see sh- a Shovel Knight illustration done in that style. And what what really amazed me is that um, so we had an interview with him for the booklet, and so I mean I I. Like all, I, all I told him, I gave him my idea. I told him it would be nice to have like something like the Mega Man One Japanese book art, where you have like Mega Man in the middle and then everyone around him. And I didn't tell him anything else. And I thought, I mean, I really thought, like, how is he gonna do this? Because it's difficult. It's difficult to capture uh, what Shovel Knight is based on just looking at the official art and looking at the different. Uh, art assets. So what he ended up doing without me telling him is that he played the game to completion. Um, he got to see everything in it. He got to understand like each stage, each, each boss, and he then mm-hmm. went to create the art, which was a really right. beautiful touch. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he wasn't obligated to do it, but I just loved it. I loved it so much. And it makes it makes sense, of course. Um, and mm-hmm. so um, we, we, we uh, had this uh, beautiful front cover that's basically in, in the Mega Man-ish kind of style. And the gatefold art is, is also beautiful of the bonfire and like every, all of the characters. And I love this. I love this. We might be, we might not be doing a lot of these custom work just because with, with classic games, we usually have a lot of, um, a lot of cool old art that we want to show to people and want to represent the game with. But uh, it was cool to mm-hmm. do this. Yeah, I agree. It was it was really really just a good match. It was it just worked perfectly. I mean, it was a great idea, and uh, and uh, it turned out just it's just absolutely stunning the art that he made for it. So mm-hmm. yeah. So after Shovel Knight, we announced the Ninja Gaiden soundtracks, which are yes, yeah. It's, it's just, super, I'm so I'm so happy excited. about it. So happy about it because so so it's the it's gonna be uh, the Ninja Gaiden NES soundtracks, Ninja Gaiden one and two and three, and also Ninja Gaiden. Arcade, which is like it's called Ninja Gaiden One. Well, not one. It's just Ninja Gaiden. Uh, it had the same, um, almost the same um, uh, front cover of the NES game, the, the NES and the PC Engine and the arcade. But it had different music, different levels, just basically different everything else, uh, different composers. Um, so, and, and we decided to include that with with, with this. So it's going to be split into two volumes. Volume One will have uh, Ninja Gaiden Arcade and Ninja Gaiden One. NES and uh, Volume Two will have Ninja Gaiden Two and Three, and one of the reasons we decided to split them is because we wanted to make it affordable. As simple as that. Um, I know that a lot of people maybe like Ninja Gaiden One, maybe they don't care about Two and Three, and a lot of people like Two, don't care about the rest. So instead of letting like letting uh, uh, someone pay similar to what we charge for Street Fighter Two, which is seventy five. Uh, bucks to to get a, a massive box collection, which is heavy, more expensive shipping, all of that. We just decided to split it. And if you want 
to get both of them, you can. If not, that's fine. And um, this this is a really really interesting project, just because um, I I went to Japan January earlier this year, um, just the very beginning of January, and um, me um, Keiji Amagishi, the composer of Ninja Gaiden, the lead composer, and uh, Alex, uh, CEO and uh, project manager, we went to Tecmo, Koei Tecmo's office. I, I usually just say Tecmo because that's the name that I'm, I just like to use. Anyway, we went to Koei's offices. Um, we met with them, and, and, and it's been just a, an extremely, extremely long process to reach the stage where we finally had the project greenlit. And then... Um, and this is also a little bit um, unusual, where with Street Fighter 2, it was me, me, Marco, Alex, just handling the project entirely, talking with Capcom and everything, and we like we only went to um, Yoko Shimamura when we wanted her to check the files and just basically have her final ab- approval on what we did. Whereas with, Ninja, with uh, this Ninja Gaiden project, KG is just doing most of the Almost all of the communication with uh, Koei, with uh, the artist Masato Kato, with uh, uh, as well as uh, talking to the other composers of the other games. And I mean, he is part of Brave Wave. He's been with us from the very beginning, before we were even an actual company or a music label. Uh, but um, and it's been a lot of work on him. He's just been doing this for the entire year of going back and forth, trying to convince them more than once. And he he did actually say that. Uh, uh, on his interview with The Verge, he did say that he had to basically just um, keep on pushing until they finally decided to, until they agreed to to do the project, let us do the project, which is an amazing thing. And what I love about this, unlike Street Fighter 2, which had a lot of different weird releases, Ninja Gaiden only had, as far as I know, it only has one release, which has, it's a very old release, KG didn't work on it at all. Um, it has the NES and the arcade soundtrack, but the NES has something weird going on with it. I think, Marco, maybe you can explain this better than me. Uh, I just think, I mean, it, it was really typical. People were in the 80s and in the 90s, and uh, early 90s especially, they were kind of embarrassed about the, the sound of video games, about the chiptune sound, about the uh, the, the lo-fi sound of it. And, and, and I mean, a lot of composers still feel uh, that way about their games they don't really fetishize it the way that we do yeah. so um what they what they used to do is they would slatter uh, uh, all the recordings in and reverb they would equalize them uh, they would remove a lot out of the frequency range in, in an effort to make it smoother and what happened here actually they would um with this soundtrack they they actually didn't just record off of Famicom, but they added layers with synths on top of it, which creates a really, really strange sound. And it's not even like a... It, it's it, the, the reverb effects, like the the effects to stimulate a room, It's it, they're not even nice. They're very, very primitive. They're not nice sounding. They, they just... It's just not a very uh, sophisticated and, and way of handling this, this type of release. There's no uh, attempt to keep it authentic or to keep it uh, the way it was in the game. They were just trying to sort of hide the origin of, of, uh, of these soundtracks, especially when they were primitive 8-bit sounds. And so from a, from a perspective, from a modern perspective from today, this is all 
terrible. I mean, you don't, you just don't, that's not what you're looking for in a soundtrack. You're looking for authenticity. You're looking for the sound that you hear out of the game. Mm-hmm. You want the chiptune sound. You want the, maybe even the lo-fi sound, but you just want the sound the way you remember it from the game. So it's just very, very far removed from what we're doing. Uh, so a lot of those, it was the same with the Street Fighter 2 soundtrack that uh, Yoko Shimomura used as a reference when she came to us and she said, this is what I'm comparing it to. And I'm like, how can we, like, we couldn't even go wrong if we tried, even though there was a lot of effort put into the Street Fighter 2 soundtrack restoration, a lot. But um, the, the the soundtrack that she showed us, um, it was also, I think, from the from the 90s. It was just so bad on every level. It was just really, really bad that even if we had tried to make something worse, we couldn't have. So it was, it was in terms of comparing what we do now, to those old soundtracks, it's uh, um, it's definitely it's something very different that we're doing now. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think one interesting thing is that with with the arcade soundtrack, we had we had a lot of um, a lot of room to improve on on the previous soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Whereas, mm-hmm. yeah, I think a lot of people might wonder, well, what's the difference between what I can listen from an NSF file uh, to our own restoration, which you're just handling entirely. Yeah, this is, uh, it's a little bit more going into like audiophile territory because, well, I'm just unreasonably excited about the fact that we have like a minus 80 dB noise floor, which is no one's going to give a shit about probably. (laughs) It's just, um, we're recording off original Famicom hardware digitally for pretty much the first time. I don't think there's any soundtracks out there that have done that. Nope. Uh, and and uh, in a, to a degree, it's just the quality. It's it's coming off original hardware, and it's a the sound chips are pretty primitive, but it's still not emulation. You know, this is actual real hardware. And if you want the real thing, that's, that's where you're going to go. There's always going to be quirks. There's always going to be things that you're not going to get from emulation. And uh, uh, um, so for purists, it's pretty clear that this is the way to go. And for my, uh, um, from where I, I'm coming from, I don't think a, a, a Famicom NES soundtrack has ever sounded this clean. I mean, it's really, I'm just super excited about that. I mean, the recording of it is just insane. It's just really good. It didn't really need much post-processing. Like, I mean... In fact, it didn't really... I mean, in terms of, like, removing artifacts, which we had a lot on the Street Fighter Two soundtrack because mm-hmm. the just the recording was very difficult and there was... The, the audio circuitry was really bad on that on those arcade boards and that we, we don't have to deal with that here. So mm-hmm. this soundtrack, uh, this is something that I want to say and future Famicom and NES soundtracks are going to be all about maximum authenticity and... Uh, 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 and a very, very, very clean, pristine sound. That's what these are about. We're not trying to like modernize it. We're not doing any crazy dynamics processing or or equalizing or anything like that. It's just the cleanest possible sound you can possibly get off a of Famicom, and uh, uh, with no artifacts and no noise. And I think that's what makes it uh, exciting. Because if you actually record um, from an analog uh, output of a Famicom, uh, the amount of artifacts that you deal with um, is, is pretty astounding. I was surprised myself. We did a lot of tests with the, of uh, like Western, uh, the, the the NES releases, PAL ones and NTSC ones and uh, Famicoms. And the noise level is pretty high. There's a lot of buzzing. There's 
you know, but, mm-hmm. and, and I, so I think that what we're doing now is uh, just the cleanest and most authentic sound you could possibly get, which is what excites me about this soundtrack. It was something totally different with the Street Fighter 2 one, which was about something a little different, but every soundtrack and every sound source and every machine is different. So that's how we're treating the soundtracks too. It's not always about uh, uh, cleaning it up or, or restoring it in that sense. Sometimes it's really just about um, clean, authentic sound. That's awesome. I, I love what you guys do with this. I'm obviously a huge fan of the stuff that you guys put out. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because you let me come on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I wish there was a documentary, you know, like an Outer Lands thing or something about the process for how this works. Um, yeah. Because I would love to see just an entire walkthrough of sort of how you get the sound off, how like, you know, what it sounds like before, what you have to do to sort of get it to the, uh, mm-hmm. like you said, on the Street Fighter soundtrack about how how you manage to get like the cleanest possible signal off an arcade board and what you have to do to sort of get it the way it's supposed to sound, even though some of the signal doesn't come through the way it's supposed to. And you have to correct mm-hmm. for that. And I love, I love hearing about all that stuff. I, I always think that most people probably find that boring. There's, there's, um, um, I can see with certain soundtracks, um, uh, there's always, um, sometimes we can't even talk about everything sure. in the process because we're limited by our contracts about what we can say, um, like in terms of uh, engineering, reverse engineering certain things and um, how we get the sound off certain ports that uh, um, oh, uh, I see. we can't go into a lot of detail. But here, no, this isn't actually not something secretive. We could do- totally do that with the Famicom soundtracks, I think. But uh, uh, um, I just wonder if there's an audience. Uh, but obviously, you're, uh, you're interested in that. Um, and... The, the question is, would anyone really want to document something like that? But um, I'd be open to something like that, sure. Just throw, a, just throw like a Periscope stream on that. I'll watch that yeah. like 24-7 <laughs> for a week. <laughs> I can't do those. I can, can, I can you do those? Like there's a lot of developers too that do this stuff where they do like live stream. Twitch, Twitch live they, stream of like, yeah, plugging into the game, fan. Like game dev or, or like music or whatever. I, I, I'm, I'm just totally freaked out by that. I can't do like personally, I can't do it. Having like people watch me work, it's just it freaks me out. It's so great. And if if I might ask, and I don't, if if this is something you're saving for another time, just tell me to tell me to shut the hell up. But uh, working working with the Famicom to sort of get that sound, um, did you have to create new tools for that, like entirely new tools, or were you able to just sort of be smarter about doing it than other people have been so far? Um, what do you think? Well, into how much detail should we go here? Yeah, as much as you're not allowed to say anything, that's totally fine. I mean, no one will ever be, no one will ever know what you did. So, no, I mean, like, uh, in terms of the hardware and everything, like, should we? um, Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You you can talk about anything. Okay, so actually, what we're using to record is the uh, analog NT. Oh, right, right, right. Because I saw you, Mohammed, talk about. I think on Twitter about it has it has like an, a special sound output or something, doesn't it? Yeah, it has, it's 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 digital. It has a digital sound output, cool. and and um, it has its own. Um, obviously, it has to convert the sound and and get uh, what 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 you do is you don't actually get a separate the uh, um, sound uh, um, like a sound stream that is just like optical or something, but you get an HDMI signal. And that was 
probably the only hassle that we had to deal with. Like you have to just split that HDMI stream, which is audio and video, mm-hmm. and extract the audio from it. But it's not really the end of the world. There's just there's uh, devices that can do that. They can just split audio from video, and then you record the audio. And there were some um, additional steps to get that noise floor down to that level, like because really it's just totally ins- like no one needs a minus eighty dB noise floor. But if you can get it, because most music production, it just you just can't go that low. But for me, it was like, okay, how can we go as low as we possibly can? And there were several steps involved in that, the recording of that. And then one thing that I can't go into too much detail about is um, is the the actual sound. I mean, it sounds, um, it's it's pretty much, it's Famicom hardware. That's what's exciting about it. There's actual Famicom hardware in the analog NT, right? right. That's what they're using. And uh, one thing that we noticed, it's it's, a little unfortunate that we don't get to work on a soundtrack right now that has extra sound chips in it, like the VRC6. Like, right. uh, for example, the uh, one of my favorite soundtracks ever, the the, the um, Japanese uh, release of Castlevania 3, which yeah. has the VRC6 chip, which is pretty much the one of the most influential and, and most amazing video game soundtracks for me. And unfortunately, we couldn't really work on that. We uh, But... Uh, that's what we use for the test, the initial test recordings, and just the the VRC six chip, which with it with with its additional channels, and then all the the built in NES channels. If you record that off an original Famicom, just through the analog out, there is so much voltage going through those analog circuits that just it just so many channels just get drowned out. It's it's actually a mess to listen to. So a lot of people these days, they know those soundtracks from the emulated versions. They listen to it on YouTube. They listen to it through mm-hmm. NSFs. They listen to it through uh, soundtracks. And most of that stuff is emulated. So they remember this kind of uh, perfect, clean digital sound. The mix, the balance isn't exactly the same as it, as it is off of Famicom. But if you go back and you play that cart on a Famicom, it doesn't sound so great. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, the there there is so much power behind that VRC six chip that, that the uh, the drum sounds just get totally drowned out, and there's so much going on, and it actually sounds like there's a sometimes it sounds like there's a limiter at play because it's just too much too much going on with all those sound channels if you play it on a Famicom, and then when you play that on an analog NT, it's just mind blowing because this is you can tell this this is how it's supposed to sound because it's not it's it's totally fine you can hear every channel you can hear everything. And, uh, of course, it's not a soundtrack that we can work on, but I'm really, really excited to work on future soundtracks um, that have special sound chips on them because that's a benefit that we're going to have recording this way that is um, really uh, unlike emulation and that is unlike uh, an original NES or Famicom. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing thing I want to add is that um, I don't think anyone will ever make a better version of the Ninja Gaiden soundtrack at all a thousand years from now that's amazing that's i love it that's a that's a bold claim i love it (laughs) you can say that because you didn't work on it i don't have to say that but i I hope so i hope so i mean unless you're gonna go do a lot of post-processing and you consider that better that would be something else of course but in terms of cleanness and and just super perfect original famicom sound yes and uh 
uh, there was another process involved that I want to say with, with the, and that's always going to be the case in the future, that we're making sure that the sound is really, uh, um, it really sounds exactly like a Famicom, like a non-analog NT machine would sound. So there was a bit of a concern at the beginning that, okay, you know, it's a digital out. They have their own uh, hardware in there. They have their own amp in there. And and uh, so is it, does it still sound like a Famicom? And there was a bit of a concern about that. So I actually recorded for every soundtrack that I've worked on uh, at this point that it was Famicom. I recorded both off of Famicom and off the Analog NT. So like an old shitty... Uh, uh, Secondhand Famicom uh, through the analog out, and I compared uh, about half of the soundtrack. Every single track, I compared it to the analog NT to make sure that the sound is exactly the same. And um, it, it was worth doing that. But I think the result is that I mean, it's just the the perfect. I don't even want to say compromise because it's just a perfect uh, um, a balance between super authentic and super clean sound. If if your idea of authenticity, of course, is the the buzzing sound that comes off the uh, Famicom uh, board and the noise and all of that stuff, then it's not terribly authentic. But I, I don't think anyone's concerned with that. So uh, it's just a very clean sound. Yeah. I remember um, one of our Japanese engineers, when I told him about the analog NT, he said, he said that he doesn't think that the analog NT would give the same accurate sound as the Famicom. Which I think a lot of people like would be thinking right now that that you know we, we we're not being authentic and we're recording from 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 a different a different machine basically, which obviously is not the case. No, it's not. And uh, I mean, uh, I made I made sure what I do is I compare frequency spectrums of every track to see if they match with the with the Famicom, and. Uh, um, we we use uh, an EQ match technology to see if the frequency spectrum aligns, and then uh, see if there's any like tiny little spots where it doesn't align with a track, and then we correct for that. Like this is stuff that it just goes beyond. Like no one's gonna hear that. You know, that's just stuff that no one can tell me that they're really gonna hear that. But we're uh, I'm going into that kind of detail where I like per track I. I analyzed the frequency spectrum from the Famicom sound versus the analog NT, which actually uses Famicom hardware anyway. And then I see if there's like tiny, tiny discrepancies. And then I apply those discrepancies and I see, okay, I have to correct a little bit here on the EQ or a little bit here to align it perfectly with the Famicom sound. And then you um, basically end up with something that is just indistinguishable. Only that it doesn't have the artifact. It doesn't have the buzzing. It doesn't have the noise and all that stuff. Yeah, I I mean, well, I was going to say that eventually the composers will approve everything, which means like if they like if they listen to it and if they think with us that this is the best sounding, like that this is the best possible recording of the soundtrack, then like you as 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 a a fan, um as a game music uh, listener you know, you will just have the uh, assurance that this is some something authentic. And I, I mean, yeah, I, I know that George Lucas like ruined your Star Wars films and, and all of that. But <laughs> so you might be saying like, well, the original artists don't, don't know everything, which you know that that's 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 fine. But they're not <laughs> just working alone. We, like we spend a lot of time just debating what we should be doing at every mm-hmm. step yeah. of the way, and. 
I don't know if I should say this, but I told you the other day, Marco, Street Fighter 2, that like for the CBS 2 recording, mm-hmm. I don't think like in our lifetime, I honestly don't think someone will release a better version. But uh, just because with the CBS 2 in, in particular, uh, it was uh, an analog recording. Like no one, no one has reverse engineered this board yet, which means there is still potentially room for improvement. Even though I don't think someone will, will will make a better version yet, but but I mean I'm just talking objectively. Like there is room for yeah. improvement. There's there's room for improvement, and there's about Street Fighter Two. You have to say that um, it's a matter of um, there's a matter of applying your own idea of how the soundtrack should how does it sound best. And with Street Fighter Two, it was if we were going to go full authentic. Uh, um, like how did it sound when you were standing in, fr- in front of the arcade in the in the arcade hall? It, it it wouldn't have sounded great. I can tell you that right now. It just wouldn't have. And what people have we we've said this before. What people have heard over the last decade or more on YouTube and everything. This is an emulated soundtrack, and you, people really have to understand that they hear emulated soundtrack and CPS two and in general arcade emulation uh, soundtrack. These soundtracks they're not accurate. They they really aren't. They're not timing accurate. The samples are not played back. At the, the, the sound mix is not great. Uh, um, there's actual missed sample triggers. Um, these, 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 they might sound clean, but they're far, far, far from accurate. So we got sound off the board analog uh, um, for Street Fighter 2, and you got a very, very uh, uh, accurate sound, but the quality was just, it was just not great. It was not great because the Q sound chip, that is the part of the arcade that isn't reverse engineered. It it mangles the sound in a way that really does not sound great on modern a modern speaker setup because it has the pseudo surround effect that messes with all sorts of things, and it has not been officially reverse engineered. And with Street Fighter Two, um, it was a process of finding out what did this effect do to the sound, and then sort of trying to reverse engineer that like by trial and error. And I think uh, we did that. And and got rid of a lot of the distortion, uh, re- recovered a lot of the high frequency content. Just the sound is so much fuller and so much nicer. And uh, um, uh, that's that's what I mean when I say it's a different method. Like for every soundtrack, it's going to be we have to look at okay, what are we dealing with? What is this arcade? Board? What state is it in? Has it been reverse engineered? Can we get digital sound off of it? Does it have artifacts? Does it actually sound? Could it sound better? The samples, especially if it's sample-based stuff, mm. a lot of the time the samples on those boards are way, way better than what this, the output uh, can actually reproduce. And that's always a difficult decision to make. Like, what do you want to do? Do you want to be super authentic to what it would have sounded like if you stood in front of that arcade machine? Or do you want to get them just the absolute max you can out of the material that is stored on there? And that's, I think, a balance that, I don't know, that's going to, be our concern for as long as we do these soundtracks. Yeah. And the reason that I mentioned this, that, that, you know, we could like, sorry, not, not we, but like someone could eventually potentially, not eventually, but potentially improve Mm -hmm. upon the CBS2 soundtrack. Like, I I do believe in that, but for the Ninja Garden NES sound, I mean, for this Ninja Garden release, no one ever will ever make a, 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 a better authentic recording just like mm-hmm. you said like if maybe like maybe 100 years from now reverb is gonna catch on i mean right now when you go when you go to youtube and you type like uh, a game's name and then nes ost you will get that awful stereo 
uh, version. Like so, so someone has yeah. all those. We're not yeah, doing that yet. It's just I just hate that so much. And like a few a few times when I was emailing you today, like I was actually like I was I was so well I was just so lazy to find a proper version to listen to. I just wanted to listen to the melodies of some of these games. But when linking when linking those soundtracks to you on the email, I thought, well, if I link this to Marco. He's gonna stamp, snap at me. So I just have to <laughs> find a better version. So maybe a hundred years from now, Reverb will be cool. Like st- stereo, like making the, like the, these soundtracks to stereo will be cool, which is a really sad future. Yeah. That, I mean, it, 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 that's one. I mean, if you, you can say it's gonna be cool and people like their reverb on, on, you know, some people like the, to put reverb on, uh, on like 8 bit sounds or whatever. Yeah. But it, this is not even a question of was it supposed to sound like this or not? Because we yeah. know it's not. We yeah. know that developers, we know that musicians did not uh, uh, program any of this music with either stereo in mind and certainly with not someone uh, slapping on a reverb uh, after the fact. That was never the case. With Street Fighter 2, it's a much different situation because the the Q sound chip, actually that the Q sound surround effect is actually a post-processing effect. Mm. And it's not something that the, uh, uh, the, the musicians, when they programmed it, necessarily had in mind. Yep. It's just something that was slapped on on top of the sound after the fact yeah. onto all of the CPS uh, uh, two uh, sound ports that had the Q sound chip. They all sounded like that. Whether the composer wanted that or not, they all had that pseudo surround effect slapped on it. So there's an argument to be made there that, you know, maybe it shouldn't have sounded like that because it's honestly, it's just a pretty shitty effect. And it is. Yeah. you can't say that about uh, stereo or reverb. If you like that, fine. But it really is pretty far removed from how this sound was meant to be heard, I think, personally. Yeah, and um, one last thing is that, like, it's not that I'm guessing that you'll make uh, uh, the best version. I do have them. I am listening to them. Uh, I've been listening to them for a while, and <laughs> yeah, they're the best. I mean, I, I have a, an app on my iPhone, which is a great app. Uh, it's called Gambi, G-A-M-B-I. Uh, it, it plays a lot of um, chiptune uh, files, plays... NSF files. I have all my favorite NES games on it. I listened to the Ninja Gaiden soundtrack a lot on that. And like the moment that I played the first few tracks from your restoration, it was just to me. To me, it was just clear that like this is just way, way, way better. That I would, I would rather throw the NSF soundtrack that I have, which is, I mean, I I don't think it's good. And uh, the more you listen to NSF soundtracks, the more you just listen a lot of weird things. Especially if you play the games a lot. If you, I mean. If you don't care about authenticity, if you're just playing on an emulator, I mean, that's fine. But it just, I mean, it just feels good to have the best possible version right now. Yeah. And in the case of Ninja Gaiden, forever as a, as a, I'm glad you as think a release. So. I'm pretty happy with it. And, and I hope uh, other people will be too, but uh, you never know until it's out there. But I'm definitely happy with it. You, yeah. You're, uh, Ben, you're, you're a big fan of, of the original Ninja Gaiden games, right? Yeah, especially Ninja Gaiden 2. My friend Dean is sort of like the only person I know who can reliably beat Ninja Gaiden 1. Uh, <laughs> and, but I only managed to beat Ninja Gaiden 2 once and have gotten to the All end right. several times uh, since then. But I love that game and its soundtrack. I used to just listen to the sound test. And, you know, there was like, what, three sound test modes in that game, mm. I think, on NES? Yep. yep. Uh, yep. And I remember getting the codes at a Nintendo Power or wherever it was just as remember which one access to get the music versus the sound effects versus whatever the third mm-hmm. one was. So I, I, yeah, that, that game soundtrack, especially is just a big deal to me. I could listen to that all day long. So when I heard the announcement, um, that you guys were putting out those, uh, those LPs, I was just so excited. Cause I can't wait to listen to Ninja Gaiden 2 forever. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Can't wait. Can't awesome wait to release that. Um, so, Shovel Knight, Ninja Gaiden, those are the recent uh, Generation Series soundtracks. We are still working on more. I mean, who knows? Maybe 2017 will come and we will only have Ninja Gaiden. And maybe, like, all the stuff that we're working on behind this is, like, maybe you will sign suddenly... Maybe we'll release five additional soundtracks. Like I, I still don't know what 2017 will be like. But if I should take a guess, then it it will be a really uh, good year in terms of projects mm-hmm. that we take and also projects that we announce and release. Uh, but that's as far as we um, uh, announce for uh, Generation Series. And one thing that we will uh, formally announce soon is a new solo album. So the last solo album we released is is. Uh, Terra Magica, which is the solo album of uh, Saori Kubayashi, the Banzer Dragoon saga composer. And uh, Terra Magica was kind of like a, a, a Banzer Dragoon-esque uh, kind of uh, album. Uh, it's inspired by the game, uh, but it's it's a totally new, uh, just original album. And our next solo album is by Takahiro Izutani. He is the co-composer of uh, Metal Gear Solid 4, Metal Gear uh, Solid Peace Walker, the Bayonetta series, uh, Shinobi 3D, a few other games. And um, as far as I know, he's been working on this album for the past maybe 10 years, like on and off with different partners, different uh, collaborators. And uh, one day he just like, he just sent a blind email through the contact form on our website. And he said, you know, I did this and that, and m- maybe you'll like what I do and you and I, Marco, we, we listen to everything he has on SoundCloud and we just loved it. Um, yeah. And I, I think we announced him in 2014, maybe. And ever since then, we said um, he's going to release an album and it's finally going to be released. We actually mastered the uh, the album a while ago, but we were just yeah. a little bit, I had a little bit of trouble with the artworks because for a while, I told him, okay, I think I think this kind of album needs photography, just because it's. I mean, it's it's a, it's, a, it's an electronic album with a lot of piano, violin, uh, guitar, like all of them recorded. Just feels that it it should be represented by actual photographs. So I had Lauren, uh, our assistant director, get me a, a few really amazing, amazing photographers. Um, I talked to one of them. They suddenly just stopped replying. Basically, um, I went to. Takahiro and I told him, look, um, I don't know if these guys are going to respond, so let me just uh, uh, look for more people. And then he said, well, why don't you use your photos? Um, and I told him, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, I'm not a professional photographer. I I love photography. Um, and in 2016, I spent a lot of time trying to learn more how to shoot better photos uh, and how to be a better photographer. And, and I've wanted to be a photographer since I was a teenager, but like this feels like the first year that I actually am finally trying to accomplish that. But I told him, you know, this is not a good idea. Let me find someone better for you. And then he said, it's fine. Let's just use your photos. And I told him, okay, like, just give me uh, two weeks. I'll, I'll find someone. And I did uh, find two good photographers. Uh, I even did mock-ups. I mean, I did so much work just to avoid releasing my own work, and he refused them all. And I was just, I, I had to confront my own work, and, and I had to just open Lightroom, look at all my photos, and present uh, a collection to him, and we just kept uh, tackling them until we decided on seven photos to include in the booklet. And it's it's just been an, um, an amazing opportunity um, because, um, I mean, I would never ever go to someone on our label and tell them, 
like I don't want to advance my own agenda as as like an artist by by enforcing my own work on another person's work. But uh, Takahiro just wanted it because he said uh, basically like his idea was like I have a lot of collaborators on this album and and you are kind of like maybe maybe you're not uh, a musician uh, and you didn't contribute to the album um, in that way, but you are the reason that this album is being released and I want you to be a part of it, which was really was a great honor it, it gave me a lot of confidence and uh and myself and my uh amateur work and it 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 got me to want to really just uh, uh continue learning so it's gonna be an exciting uh, release for me uh, it's gonna be the first solo album that we have that will be on vinyl, which is, I don't know, it's probably a stupid thing to release this on vinyl because we don't know if it will sell. Like with game soundtracks, you know that people will buy them. But with original albums, mm-hmm. it's really difficult. I mean, I mean, it's really difficult to even convince someone to just click on a link and listen to a new album. So the idea we of buying... You have to probably kind of raise the awareness of, of who, the, who he is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the fact that people have to know what kind of music he's made in the past, and I yeah. think that's going to make people interested because I think the mu- music is beautiful, and 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 uh, if they know the, what he's worked on, you know, Bayonetta and and so on, then they're gonna they're gonna get much more interested in in, in this album, I think. Yeah, and and I mean, honestly, like um, we've been like releasing stuff since uh, 2013, so if you like, if you trust our albums, our selection, our our taste, and our own standards of the artists that we have on the label, then I think you will love this album just like any other album that we release. I, I love it. It's, it's one of my favorite albums that um, we have. Well, I mean, I do like them all because they're all really good and we don't really have bad albums. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's going to be a good thing and we'll probably talk about it in a future episode when it's out. It's going to be out uh, uh, mid-January. Uh, we'll be releasing more at the beginning of the year. So if, you, if, if you're following me, Marco, or, or the Brave Wave account, you'll see it. And that's that's basically it for the near future for Brave Wave. Uh, so I wanted to I wanted to add one tiny thing because it actually we have a reader question mm-hmm. that was about what we talked about before. Oh, that's right, yeah. And just just to just to cap that off, sort of, uh, um, uh, was someone asked us on Twitter um, whether in the future we would do like if we do Super NES releases. Um, he asked, can you tell us something about the sound quality of soundtracks released during that time? Are those authentic or is there room for improvement? So I think what he what he wanted to ask is um, uh, if these, th- the way we heard them, if, if that is the best possible quality and if we're going to release them like that. And that's something we addressed just before that for every single soundtrack, it's going to be different. I know from what I understand, um, there's a lot of systems especially in the 16-bit era that were uh, sampled, that had, had sample-based sound chips, um, where the sound the sound samples that were saved on uh, the cartridges or whatever format they used were actually of much higher quality than could be reproduced by the sound chip itself. Or there were, there were filters that, to address certain uh, problems. That was the case also on Street Fighter 2, by the way. There were filters applied after the fact that would dull uh, the samples and make them sound a lot more lo-fi than they actually are. So I think that might be the case for certain Super NES soundtracks too, or maybe it's the case across the board. I'm not really sure. I, I can't really say right now because I don't know enough about that. I don't want to uh, say something wrong, but it's going to be on a case-by-case basis in terms of uh, we're going to look at 
if that makes sense. Um, the problem might be in a lot of these cases that you have to move to emulation and that's not something that we really want to do. Like if you have yeah. to move to emulation, you get the best quality out of uh, uh, the, the samples, then mm, that's probably not something that we're going to want to do. However, if there's a sort of a compromise, which is something we've done in the past, if there's a, if there's a compromise, like if, if you can maybe take some material or some information, sometimes it's just about information from the frequency ranges of, of see an emulated soundtrack and use that in conjunction with the uh, uh, original sound playback from from the hardware, then maybe that's worth the compromise. But we're going to have to see if it drastically alters the sound uh, that people remember, especially on these kinds of consoles like the Super NES, which are just uh, people are pretty hardcore about the 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 they the want their, this 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 music to sound because they remember it a certain way. Um, we might have to just stick to that i really can't say but i think it's important to just say uh, yes we have to look at that on a case-by-case basis because we can't just apply the same kind of principle to every soundtrack Mm -hmm. yeah so ben what about you i have found this a very interesting year for games it's been a pretty interesting year all around i'd say Mm mm-hmm uh, it's been. We want to hear. We, we want to hear about your game first. Sure, sure, sure. So you say anything? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, game of the year, my game, I guess. Just <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, it's it, only by default because it's the one I've been thinking about the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting because um, I don't know what you guys are like as creators, but I find it difficult to often. Um, take in other uh other games when i'm working on my own just kind of like when i work on comics or do or do writing i find that if i read too much uh it distracts me from what i'm doing because i get very easily influenced by what other people are doing and i get very easily excited or interested in other people's techniques or or whatnot i am like 100 percent. 100 percent agree yeah so yep. in a year when so many games came out um and i was spending every day for eight months just sort of crunching on on my game uh it it was difficult to enjoy games because either i would find a game because i was just busy and cranky because i was just trying to get stuff done and you know was very impatient about things or because i would look at something else and and think that another game solved the problem better than i did and would just get extremely upset about that (laughs) it would so it'd be this like reverse Everything with games up to a certain point this year was like a, a negative feedback loop where it was either explaining that I should be working on my game, I should just be hurrying up and finishing it, or I would see something that I, like I said, thought was better, and then that would just make me get more upset about what I was doing the next day at work. Uh, or sometimes, I guess, I'd find something that I thought a game didn't do very well and thought that maybe we had solved the problem a little bit more elegantly. But it, it, it was not a year in which I could enjoy games because I was so busy working on my own and, and just like constantly stressing over the stupid game that I was working on. So it's uh it's a terrible time to play games when you're crunching to finish a game of your own, because you just can't enjoy anything the way you would like to. Yep. I agree. And so your game is called alone with you, which I love the title, by the way, I am, I am melodramatic. So it's just, it's just a beautiful title. Thank you. But tell me more about it. So I, I did buy it, by the way. I did buy it on the the, the, the day it came out. But I, of course, um, me being me, I still didn't play it. I will though. But sure. Go on. That is a that that is an issue. I think as people who make games, uh, we increasingly face. There's just like too much content, not enough time. So mm-hmm. 
yeah, so I bill it as a sci-fi romance adventure, and it's a bit of a weird title, but the way I like to look at it is it's like an episode of Star Trek where, yeah, there's a bunch of sci-fi stuff and there's, there are these uh, uh, set pieces that bring you back to sort of these fantastical worlds and reference all this nerdy stuff, but the end of it is all about some kind of morality play or emotional theme. And the whole point of the game was to take uh, a couple things that I really liked, which is adventure games, which I've uh, worked in before, uh, as well as dating style games like Persona, but sort of just cherry pick the parts that I liked the most. Mm-hmm. And the way I always explain it to people who have never heard of it before is that if you are of a certain age group, Persona is especially appealing. And if you like a certain cultural aspect in your games, Persona could be really appealing uh, because it's generally geared towards you know towards a younger audience in a way in that the characters in those games are generally younger and because they're almost always from japan they have a lot of tropes and a lot of angles that never seem to change from game to game there's variations but if you don't like the way say certain parts of japanese humor are you're never going to like a dating sim because they all use it and if you don't want to play a game about high school students there are pretty much like zero dating games for you to play uh, because they're always said it's just sort of the world that, that these games exist in. So for me, as someone who's like 37, been married for over 15 years, that's not really my jam. Like I feel, even though I love Persona 4 Golden, by the way, on the Vita, but I do get a little embarrassed playing it when my wife's around because I'm basically just cheating on her uh, with my Vita <laughs> and it just feels awkward. It opens up all these conversations. Um, but you know, to me, I kept thinking, well, what can you do to make a game that is for people who like getting these sort of emotional payoffs or these uh, explore these narrative angles, but don't want to exist in that specific world? It's for the same reason why I often like going to blockbuster movies, but I just get tired of superhero movies or I don't want to see a fantasy movie. And you think, man, why can't someone make a blockbuster movie that's just about something else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let me use it basically about that. And, and the people who like it uh, rarely talk about the sci-fi angle, although they, they often... Uh, can appreciate that but the the reason why they like it is because they say you know man i had to make some of these decisions or i had to uh, figure out who to spend time with uh, in the game and i had to use my time accordingly and at the end it just never felt like like i always i always felt like i wanted to spend more time with this person or that person or i always felt like torn about something i had to do which is sort of the, the point of it so I always tell people it's like a summer love. If you've ever had that experience of meeting somebody in a summer break or something similar like that, and it's never enough and you know it's fleeting and it's not meant to last and it's difficult and awkward and probably not ideal in any way, but you just do it anyway and then just deal with the repercussions at the end. That's that's kind of the, the feeling we were going for. I like your pitch. It's great. I <laughs> this love is it. definitely yeah. a game I would, I would play based on what you said. I didn't realize that... I like the Star Trek thing too that you said that it's kind of a it, uh, has similarities with like a Star Trek episode or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before the game sort of really got underway, I was watching a whole lot. Well, by a whole lot, I mean I watched all of the Next Generation again uh, and awesome. looked, and watched every single episode from beginning to end. Uh, and in doing so, I realized that's my favorite television show of all time. Uh, and I grew up with it, and I was always wondering why I liked it so much. And rewatching it again, it was all about that classic idea of what science fiction and what a lot of uh, fiction is to me, which is all about you know shining that mirror on on humanity, giving you sort of a fantastical way to explain things that are mundane and and perhaps a mm-hmm. lot more um, difficult to deal with in other ways. And I really like the idea that games are just almost by their definition a way to do that. They're a way to take 
They're a way to take something that would seem maybe silly or hard to explain and use metaphor or mechanics or uh, player agency and then get you to a place where you're more comfortable discussing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I look forward to playing it. Um, I think it was recently on sale. Is it still on sale? Is it full price now? It is back to full price. Yeah, it was part of the... Uh, there was a sale uh, for the European release for PS4 and Vita. And then a couple weeks later, there was a sale uh, as part of um, PlayStation's holiday sale in North America for PS4 and Vita. But right now, it is uh, back to being a whopping $9.99 USD. Wow, that's a lot yeah, of money. I, know. I, had to, I really regret playing Uncharted 4 over this, I have to say. Because I, <laughs> I got my PS4. I got my PS4 and I like messaged Ben and I'm like, uh, finally I can play alone with you because I've been meaning to play it. Because I'm a huge fan of uh, Ben's uh, uh, first game or at least first uh, publicly released game. Yeah, if first, I'm not mistaken. first commercial Home. game, yeah. First commercial game, yeah. Home. Uh, I was a big, big fan of that game, and so I was looking forward to it alone with you, but it, it didn't come on the PC. I didn't have a PS4 for a long time, and it it was supposed to be one of the first games I played, but then I'm like, eh, let's just get this Uncharted thing out of the way, right? <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, that was a big disappointment. Then Final Fantasy fifteen happened, and my wife was playing that, and uh, I think we all agreed at the end of this that... that uh, uh, this did not start off while we should have played this other game. And we're going to play that together, by the way, Ben. My wife and me are going to sit down. Usually these adventure-type games, we like to play it together. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I, I love your Star Trek pitch, which makes me want to play it even more right now. That's great. And, and your wife's from Canada, right? She is, yeah. So she, there's a whole layer of things in there she's going to love. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know that. It's a very Canadian-friendly game. That's fine. Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you that, yeah. Since we talked about the... Shitty game that is Final Fantasy 15. I think that's our segue into talking about the games that we played this year. But I don't think we will start with 15. Uh, but anyway, we talked so much at the beginning. So Ben, I think I think we should start with you and just talk about um, anything you want now. Sure. Well, okay. So I, there's one s- small but not small game I'd like to talk about, which is uh, Super Mario Run. Mm-hmm. recent mm-hmm. of course to this podcast now it's been getting a lot of press obviously and people have been talking about it uh people have been talking about it in a lot of ways that have nothing to do with the game and how it plays which is unfortunate a lot yeah. of it is about business models or about um, oh yeah uh, about audience or about fit and app stores and all that sort of stuff and it's amazing how little press this game is getting in terms of just being a game agreed and so for me like obviously a huge mario fan uh been playing it since i was a kid played pretty much all of them I I love this game so much, and a lot of it is because I think it feels like a brand new game, even though it obviously isn't, because, you know, it is a Mario game, it's using a lot of the same mechanics and whatnot, um, but because they, you know, there's a new interface of it just being sort of one-handed touch-based game, I feel like I get to rediscover what Mario is uh, through the interface, and then through that, because Nintendo had to do this well through the design of it, I feel like it's getting to. I'm getting to see them how they distill a bunch of design ideas. I don't know. I maybe maybe I'm being too academic, mm-hmm. but every time I play the game and I realize things that I'm doing wrong or things that I'm uh, doing because of habit, and then learning new tricks, it's not like with other games which you may get to that are frustrating for me it's just I, f- I feel like i'm getting to learn all over again so it totally makes me feel like a kid again and, and i never thought i'd say that about you know like a mobile mario game i a lot of people were sort of worried i'm sure that it was going to be a game that didn't feel like a like a legitimate mario game and i don't know maybe you guys feel that way but to me 
Like, every time I pick it up, I'm so excited, and I feel like I'm playing Mario 2 with my brother again. Hmm. That's interesting. Mo, what, what did you think about the game? Um, now, whether I can say it's a it's a real Mario game or not, I think it's difficult for me at this age, but I can say that it it is a mobile-friendly game. Like it, It's a game designed for uh, touch devices, which I think is obviously much better than having uh, virtual sticks and all of that awful design. Yeah. I didn't play a lot. I uh, I got all the coins, um, like all the triple coins in the first three stages. I did play the fourth stage. I finished it, but I didn't collect all the coins yet. The one thing that I didn't like, would maybe, maybe it will change as I progress, is that some of the coins... So the idea, for, for those who didn't play it, like it's... it's Well, I don't think it's an auto-runner because, yes, Mario does run all, all the time automatically, but sometimes... There are uh, blocks that he walks on and you could just tap and he would actually go backward. And there are some blocks that he could just, like, it, it would just stop him mm-hmm. indefinitely. And it, it, it depends on, on your um, input to, to move him. But anyway, I, I, I enjoy all of that. Uh, it's, it's really difficult for me to assess this as a Mario game because I can read regular Mario levels. Like, I can say, like, this, this, like this game has good level design, this game has... So it's all design. With this one, I can't. It's just a new experience for me. So it's difficult for me to properly criticize it. But one thing I didn't like is that... So you collect coins. You collect um, pink coins, I think, at the beginning. And they're really easy coins. You can, like, spot them in the level. You should just you can just collect them all. Um, and when you collect all the pink coins, they give you purple coins, which are more challenging, more cleverly hidden. And then once you get all those five purple coins, you unlock the same state, same everything. Sometimes the level design changes uh, and you have to collect the black coins. And the only thing that I didn't like is that some of the coins are hidden inside um, those um, bricks or boxes. And, And it's just difficult to tell because it just means I have to replay the level and hit every box that I see, hope that I will find the uh, the coin inside, and then I have to mem- memorize which box in which specific area has a coin inside. It. Like this, like this one thing I didn't like, but in general, I I th- think it's interesting. Yeah, um, I don't think it's it spells mm. doom for Nintendo or anything. Uh, I think it's smart that they released a game on the iPhone, and from a marketing perspective, I think it's it's it's, it's the smartest marketing campaign for for whatever. Uh, whatever they have next which is the Switch Nintendo Switch so um, um, I'm glad that they released it and I think as far as the general public is concerned they like the game Uh, today I gave my nephew uh, an iPad an iPad mini my old iPad mini and the when he knew that there is a Mario on iOS he just went insane and he just (laughs) kept playing it for for hours right so I think it's great. Uh, I think it's great that it exists. I just don't have much of an opinion on it j- just yet. Okay, I think that that um, you've you've started. I mean, you got into some of the design problems, and I think I I, I can totally see where um, Ben is coming from in terms of rediscovering sort of, or maybe for the first time discovering, okay, what what actually makes Mario level design? Because the reality is that this is really paired down and simplified to its very core of what 2D level design is. So more you probably don't really get the time to stop and think about, okay, what's happening in this level? Because the, the movement is still, it's, it's still a forward 
a pushing movement, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't get to stop and analyze, okay, why is this happening right now? But Ben is totally right in that. Um, so even more so than usual, like every level is typically about a single idea, and it's it can be an enemy, or it can and it, it can be a, a concept of sometimes it's just a turtle shell or whatever, and then they explore that in in, in every way they can within that limited set of of uh, um, mechanics that you have with like a, a runner of this type, which I think is beautiful because that's this kind of simple design that and focused design that I like about Nintendo. However, I think a big miscalculation are the coin challenges. I don't really care. For me, platformers are all about the most challenging aspects, especially 2D ones. So you have... I don't really care about all the other stuff with the toad houses or the toad kingdom. Rally. I don't know what right. you can do. And I don't care about the competitive stuff, which is not not to diminish that. I just I, I just, I just don't understand. I mean, it's just not, not for me, the races mm-hmm. against other people. So uh, I'm really focused on the single-player... A portion of it just playing through that and getting all the coins and all that stuff so uh in terms of that i think that um the coins the different color coins they have been lifted from 2d mario design that started in basically i think super mario World with the yoshi coins mm-hmm. and you can't do that with this type of runner because uniquely this runner has it has branching paths and uh, um you can't make a decision about where to go like what's going to be in one of those paths before you actually see what's happening in there. Right. And I think uh, a game that is fundamentally designed around uh, this type of trial and error, I think trial and error is an important part of game design, but mm-hmm. tr- this kind of trial and error that is not rewarding in any way where you simply say, okay, there's three different ways I could go. I'm going to pick path one and the next coin turns out to be in path two. And it's just, there's absolutely no joy in that. All you can do is, if you have a bubble left, you put yourself in a bubble. Oftentimes, that doesn't actually work because of the context of how the levels are designed. You just restart the level. Mm. I, and I don't see the fun in that. There's mm. there's how many? Five coins. Sometimes you're at the end of the level, you got four. There's a branching path at the end of it. And you just have to reset the entire level because you went down be- instead of up. How, how that is... How that makes sense, that type of design, is a, mm. a total mystery to me. I, I, I think they should have figured out a way to put the coins in, a, just make it skill-based, how to get to the coins, but put them in a place where you can only go one way, not where you can make a decision 10 seconds before that screws you over later. And for me, because that's the most interesting aspect of the game, these challenges it's just very frustrating. So yeah. I, I like the the principle. I like the the mechanics. I like the philosophy of the of the game design. But these these coin challenges, the harder they get, and the further you move into the game, the more branching paths and so on, the more frustrating they get. And it's not a solution to put yourself into a bubble and and go back because oftentimes that that just doesn't work, or you don't have enough bubbles, or uh, it doesn't even really solve the situation that you're in. That's my main frustration with the game. Yeah, and sometimes uh, when you put yourself in the bubble, okay, so you, you you go back a few screens, but the thing is sometimes like you have to jump on a turtle's head and then bounce off and jump on yeah. another turtle's head and then yeah. bounce off and like climb to something higher. So mm-hmm. uh, putting yourself in a bubble will not like reset their, exactly. um, their, their, their position, which means yeah. you, know, you just have to uh, do you this have to all over again. Yeah, and, exactly. and this for me, this was very apparent in level... One three, uh, which uh, like there are 
those uh, blocks where if you jump on them, like uh, sorry, if, if you like tap the screen to jump as soon as 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 Mario is walking on them, like he would just like jump forward. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like when I tap a little bit when I'm at the very beginning on that block, he would just like he would jump, and he's almost at the turtle's head, but. He just falls down and dies. And sometimes, like, he's, like, at the middle of that block, like, the speeding block, and I tap a little bit harder, uh, and he goes way further. So I feel that it would have been, I don't know, more fun to make it more tight. Like, basically allow more room for mistakes, uh, because in this type of game where you know he's just moving and, and running all the time and you don't really have uh, a lot of control on Mario it's it's better to just not have it be as precise as it is right now which um admittedly I didn't play a lot I'm still in the first world but uh, this particular level really really annoyed me so much uh, when I when I had to get all the coins all the black coins mm-hmm. but just like you I do love everything else about it I, I love the philosophy uh, I love that it's just, you know, you just buy it. Uh, you, you actually get to try it, which is a good thing. And uh, if you think, like, the first world is enough for you, that's fine. If if you want to play more, just pay 10 bucks and you have the full game. Because I did play a, a few free-to-play games, like Clash Royale, and everything about those games is designed to suck your money, basically. And I did, actually, pay quite a lot of money on Clash Royale, Uh uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed about it, but it did allow me to take a really harder look at how these free-to-play games are designed, and I'm just glad Nintendo didn't uh, go this way uh, mm. with uh, mm. Super Mario Run. Even though, like, if, if they did, they would have I don't know, maybe triple, quadruple, maybe even more the amount of money, but they didn't, mm-hmm. uh, and I I like that. And all the backlash is is just to, to borrow Apple's word. <laughs> I'm glad that they're being. Uh, courageous about it and just uh, taking all the blame for this and taking all the negative press and all the negative reviews for it because the app store is broken mm-hmm. and uh, all games are cheap and some some of the best games that I've played uh, on iOS are really cheap and it's just annoying to see people have this expectation of oh this is a mobile game and I just want to pay a, like uh, one buck or two bucks for it and that's it and it's just I think it's wrong and I'm glad Nintendo is, is uh, is embracing a different model. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. As someone who has released a game for the App Store and dealt with, you know, angry emails from people who paid 75 cents for a game, uh, it's, <laughs> I'm glad they're charging money for it, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, don't, I mean, I don't think they're going to fix what's wrong with the model, unfortunately, but yep, I def- anything, like anything helps. And, like, again, for me, you know, Mario game is always supposed to be sort of like an exciting new thing. It's always supposed to, even when they're a little bit iterative, they always bring you new things that you never really thought of because they're never, they're never made haphazardly. That's for sure. You know, yeah. it always bugs me when people just like throw out sort of just say like, Oh, this game is just like the last one. And you think, and mm, especially yeah, as you guys yeah. who are like big on game design, you could look at anything and say, mm, I don't know. Like a lot of people didn't like new super Mario brothers two that much. And that was like, it might be my favorite 3ds game. My number one, uh, that's definitely my number one or two, uh, because of the change, the changes they made to that game 
just they were different enough that I sort of found a new angle on the game and suddenly I just realized how much I loved it and I couldn't I just didn't expect to. I thought I was sort of just going to play in, you know. Wait, which one? New, new Super Mario Bros. New 2? Super Mario Bros. 2 for 3DS. Oh, my God. I love, oh my that, God. I love that game so much. Oh, my God. Oh my yeah, God. We're, both Mom and me were not big fans of that game. But but, but yeah. I, I want to I, I say one thing that you <laughs> Sorry, mentioned before. <laughs> it's, it's fine. You said that, you know, people sometimes don't appreciate or you think, oh, it's just another Mario game. Or it's just it's just the same as the last one. Or, or they're milking this thing. Or whenever they say that... Uh, I also have to say that those are the same people that tend to say, or I heard this opinion. This is an actual opinion that you read on message boards. When Mario Maker, Super Mario Maker came out, they're like, so now that we have Super Mario Maker, why does Nintendo even need to release more 2D Mario games? Like the idea that the, that since everyone can make 2D right. Mario levels now, why do we need Nintendo? This oh. idea that 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 the design has absolutely nothing to it. I mean, it, it it just tells you a lot about what people think game design is like, and what what the uh, and the level of appreciation and understanding they have for designing uh, levels or designing games as a whole. They think because now they put out all the tools to make this that now they no longer have to do it. It's the same as if, if, if um, I don't know, you could say this about any manufacturer, any game developer. Okay, now we're going to show you how it works. So now we don't have to release any products anymore because anyone can do it. It's such a strange way of thinking. like, And, and it totally devalues and dim- diminishes the accomplishments and the, the work that goes into actually designing these levels and, 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 and entire games around them. It's just wild to me that people could think that way. Yeah, and I mean, that's really easy. It's extremely easy to make awful, awful levels in Mario Maker. And actually, I started this way. And the more that I try to really put a lot of thought into everything that I'm doing with the level, the more that I realized I am not a level designer. I just can't make a good level. And I mean, I did bail really early on this. I should have tried to actually design at least one level. But I mean, designing good levels is one of the absolutely hardest things because mm-hmm. yeah. I, mean, I mean it's just it's just really difficult to design good levels to 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 figure out what makes this game like what makes mario or mega man uh fun and like distill that absolutely. and then uh, and then just can you know you have to reverse engineer it as as a player who's trying to now design levels you, like, you have to reverse engineer the whole thing and now you have to apply what you know into designing your own levels and um i think it's just simply a lot of People just don't know that the m- magic is in the level design. Sure, no, they, they, they don't. Especially in games that are so uh, so focused on. Uh, for me, pretty much eighty percent of the development on the, on the game that I'm working on uh, is the, the level design. I, I think, and there is, you know, there game development, and I mean, Ben knows this uh, as well as any other uh, indie game developer. Uh, the g- game development is is just. It's just absolutely insane the amount of uh, uh, skill that it requires that you didn't realize before you got into it and the oh, amount yeah. of work that every single aspect that people just dismiss on, on online or a message work where they say, well, why doesn't every game have this? Or why or right. why why don't I have the option to do this? Why aren't all these bullet points in every single game that I play? And they really just don't understand what game what game development is like and and. and and um, what it actually means to implement those things. And so considering that already it takes such a huge amount of work for me to say that 80% for me for the kind of game that I'm doing is still in the level design, it mm-hmm. just tells you about how important 
uh, it is to a game that has handcrafted level design, which is an entirely different story again from something like uh, procedurally generated ones. Sure. It is it is it's just insane the amount of thinking and the amount of work that has to go into those kinds of levels so i have a huge amount of respect for the levels that are uh, even in a game like uh, uh, super mario run which are simpler and more focused than in in most uh, 2d mario games right yeah absolutely it's pretty yeah it's i could go on about this forever Yeah, I think I think honestly one day we will just have an episode just about level design because there is so much to talk about and Marco mm-hmm. did tons and tons of 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 actual like quote unquote reverse engineering of the Mega Man l- levels to understand what makes them fun mm-hmm. and he yeah, shared a lot of those ideas with me and laid out on my um, on my floor like I have all the, the NES maps printed out and that's then I would great. just scribble it looks like a like a serial killer uh, one of those things <laughs> you know that's funny I always use that I always <laughs> yeah. mention game design looks like serial killer notebooks too <laughs> yeah it's just like it's just like printouts of weird uh 8-bit images and just scribbled over it and and that's basically i spent my first few months of of prototyping just doing that basically just scribbling on on uh, level design maps that i thought were interesting yeah i mean um, um one last thing to say about this uh is that Mega Man one is one of the first games that i ever played like i i actually owned the cart it was my like my cart um and i've played it ever since and like looking at like marco's revelations and and own 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 conclusions made me appreciate Mega Man much more so i just can't wait to talk about this maybe maybe yeah we're gonna have to because we're not gonna Only stop some. we're gonna have to we'll have yeah. one episode that's just about like Mega Man level design otherwise we're never gonna stop oh i have a, uh, there's a designer here in town that you should absolutely get on that he Mega Man level design is what he is born from everything in his life really? is based around Mega Man level design so that's fascinating i'm gonna say one last thing on this and that I'm not going to mention again because again I'm not going to stop. Uh, it's a lot of people, and I, it just bothers me so much when people bring up, uh, for example, they, they write articles about the the stuff that Mario 3D World or whatever. I, I mean, I love Nintendo design. I think they're pinnacle of uh, they're the pinnacle of level design a lot of the time. But they say, oh, this game introduced this new style of 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 or, or this new philosophy of 2D level design or this new philosophy of of level design in a platformer. I'm like. You know, Capcom did this in Mega Man like ages ago, and and they mm. did this, but no one talks about it. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating how few people talk about it. People talk about retro games a lot, and they they pick them apart, but but not on a on a microscopic level where they really see because the developers were humble and they still are. They don't really talk about it. Oh yeah, that's just how we did it. Whatever, you know, nothing's nothing special. That's just how you do it. You read that a lot, right? In 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 those old developer interviews well that's just how you do it i mean that's just what else are you gonna do and there's so much thought put into that they're so humble about it they're so Mm. humble about how they designed those games and those levels and i'm just just want to be on record to say that uh mega man established so many conventions for 2d level design for the kind of thinking uh, and the 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 way they teach players and I hate it when people say, oh, they're just punishingly hard, those games, but they really are not. They're very, very careful in how they uh, teach the player about a lot of things. And uh, it's been there, you know, it's it started really, really early in the 80s. Uh, um, it's not something that just happened, you know, in the last decade or so that people figured out how to do 2D level design. It's been something that's been going on for a very long time. 
And a misconception is that people think good level design with Mega Man started with Mega Man 2, and they don't realize that it's actually all Definitely over Mega is. Man 1. But it yeah, true. <laughs> yeah that's, that, that's for um, another episode. So what what else did you did affect you or made you just really enjoy gaming then? So there were two two things. One small game, and I wrote it incorrectly in the show notes because I'm an idiot, uh, but it's called Infested. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. so this is okay. a game. It's a free game that you can get on itch.io, and it is designed – it was designed by – so it was – it was developed by my friend who's got his own company now, and it was designed by his brother. And uh, my friend Jason runs a company called Household Games here in Toronto, and his brother okay. is just like this amazing secret level design master. Uh, Jason likes to say that he might be the world's greatest level designer that nobody knows about. And he makes these Doom maps and these like entire Doom campaigns and things that are just impeccable, just excellent. He's just so good at what he does. And so one day he just sort of emailed Jason uh, a whole bunch of these assets and basically designed an entire NES-style Chemco adventure game in the vein of Deja Vu or Uninvited um, Mm -hmm. and Shadowgate. He's like, here, I designed a whole game. Like, all the graphics, all the items, everything. He just had it ready. I'm looking at it right now. It It looks pretty damn cool. So... Uh, Jason and him, he worked together to to basically just make it happen. They got music in there, uh, and they just made a full game. And I played it. It you know, like a lot of these games, when um, if they're not too brutally hard, then they only take you about like an hour or two. And I got to play it just before it came out. And I said to him, I said, "This is the most fun hour and a half I've had with video games in a long time," uh, because <laughs> I forgot how fun these things are and how sort of atmospheric and impactful they can be because they're always designed to be small, you know, like really small stories or almost like episodes of something. Um, but because they were generally quite difficult and sometimes a little obtuse before, you know, it's not like you would just blaze through them the first time you got them. This game's a little more forgiving than some of them, but it does have still, you know, the chances of death when you do something wrong. But it mm-hmm. just hits that, it you know, it's like a perfect... Uh, like a note perfect recreation of these games as if Kemco kind of said oh hey we made a new one guys we kind of forgot to tell you about it uh, so we dug it up and here it is It's it plays exactly like that and it was so much fun I really recommend anyone check it out I really liked it not just because I know the people who made it but it was such a joy compared to I think I was just slogging through a bunch of other stuff around then and it was so nice to play a game and say I know what this is this is super fun I love everything about it Cool. Infested, right? It's called. Infested. And it's on HIO. That's right. Okay. Yeah, cool. We will have it in the show notes. Um, cool. Did either of you guys play Virginia? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. Do you have? Yeah, it was so it was super interesting because um, I had someone else tell me about it, but I guess he didn't like it. Uh, but he didn't really say anything about it other than, you know, I gave it a shot and I didn't really like it. And then I was looking for something to play. This is sort of between it was I remember during a week when like we were so busy with the game, things were just at a certain point. But I had this one day where I had I finally had like two or three hours to actually just play a game and, and just forget about work. So I decided to pick mm-hmm. it up uh uh for PS4 and played it through all in one sitting. And I really, really liked it. I don't think it sticks the ending, but uh it was such a unique 
um, approach to storytelling in games. And the whole point, if you haven't played it, is you know it's 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 three D. It's got those beautiful sort of slightly low poly, simple shaded graphics, beautiful color um, uh, color sense and design sense, and how it's presented. And it's essentially just a narrative that you push forward. And the whole point of the game, as far as I understand it, was that the the designers wanted to use some language from other mediums, specifically film, to play with editing and scenes and transitions that a lot of other games don't do. You know, generally we have a game, they do a fade out, they do a fade in, you do things like that. But this game will have you go through an event, you know, your next option is kind of to walk through this door and you're walking down a hall. And while you're walking down the hall, it does a hard cut to two days later and you're walking down a different hall as you're going towards these stairs. So, and they use some of that language from, from film to create these moments of, of emotion and sort of time. Uh, and, it's all told in the first person. It isn't really something that you, you know, put your own stamp on in terms of story. You really just are playing these scenes. And a lot of it is just kind of sort of figuring out what to do that will advance it. But because right. it was just the right length and because it is so beautiful um, and just had this, it just, it didn't feel, uh, it just had a real heart. It didn't feel like it was forced. There were some parts of it that I definitely didn't like in terms of story. I, didn't, I thought that they were, there are things that they just should not have included. It would have made it stronger in terms of narrative, but in terms of uh, the the voice of it, it was consistent, um, and it felt like it came from a good place. And it was such a lovely... It's a weird way to put it. It was, like, it was such a lovely time I had with this game, even though it kind of gets kind of messed up sometimes, uh, that when it was done, I could honestly say I've never played a game like that. I've never had experience quite like that. That was exactly the right length. Uh, it's make me think about things. I'm really interested to see what these guys do next. And I mean, for me, that's all I ever want about or want out of games. So that was like a nice highlight uh, in, in sort of a sea of other much larger things that were happening. I'm definitely interested in, in the game. I've, I've read a lot about it. And I think that um, you mentioned, I've, I've heard comparisons to, I don't know, have you played 30 Flights of Loving? I have not. Uh, I've had some people tell me about it. I watched some video mm -hmm. on it, but I never played it through myself. Okay, it's it's similar in that sense that they explored that same idea of like nonlinear, uh, like like editing taken from film, where you do these hard cuts, where they just jump to another scene, or the advance scene, or even like a jump cut within the same scene. And and I know that people compared it to that too. It's it's a game that I played, Thirty Flights of Loving, and I, I thought exactly that it did some really unique things in storytelling that wasn't done before in mm -hmm. games so that's the aspect that has always intrigued me about virginia too but and and curiously enough both of these both 30 flights of loving and virginia have some like mixed user reviews there's mm -hmm. nothing that deters me or anything but it's interesting that they both have the same approach that is kind of jarring mm -hmm. uh, uh, in terms of what they do with the storytelling and kind of unique also linear and fairly short experiences fairly like it's it's pretty much a like an the vision of a, a small team that just tells you, okay, this is how you're going to play this game. It's, 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 it's really linear. It's more of a, an experience. And I always like those things, especially when they're really focused. I don't like it when they go on for like 20 hours because yeah. that just doesn't work. I agree. But, uh, um, but Virginia sounds like something that, uh, that I do want to try eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the thing that I remember the most about it was, uh, after playing through the game, I realized, wait a minute, there's no dialogue in the game. Nobody talks. There are no words. <laughs> and that was at a point when I was looking at the word count for Alone With You. And I think the word count's at like <laughs> 96,000 words or something like that. Like oh, it's, it's obscene. And we were 
at this point, I think in development when I was trying to figure out some story stuff and a lot of it just means like more writing or revising writing, all that kind of stuff. And I got so mm-hmm. mad because I played Virginia and went, oh, damn it. They made a whole game where nobody says anything. And it's yeah. and I really like it. Like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I never want to write another word ever again. I know this feeling. I actually, um, I mean, this has nothing to do with the game. With a game, actually, but um, we have an album in the works for several years called Project Light. And Marco and I, Marco and Lauren and I, like we came up with this really beautiful story. I still love it. I, I, I was talking about it the other day. I made me realize how much I loved it. It's basically a, a, a sci-fi space story. And like we finished it soon before Interstellar was out. And then mm-hmm. I went to the cinema and I watched Interstellar. And I mean... It was the first film in my life that when it finished, I, I was so depressed because I just kept thinking, I will never be able to write something as good as this. Like, I will never in my life be able to write something half as good as this. And it just made me hate everything that we wrote and our story <laughs> and everything about it. And it's, I think, I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons that uh, I, I, I stopped looking at that um, uh, album story. I mean, we, we, we basically made a whole story for a music album to hire the composers to come up with tracks. And um, at one point I thought, well, like maybe we don't need all of this. Like maybe, maybe it should just be, Hey, just write a, 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 a theme and ice level kind of theme. Like no need for a story, no need for anything. Like it made me hate, hate the whole story. And only now after like not looking or reading the thing for a few years and looking at it again and thinking about it again that I came to appreciate it. But I, I understand this. Sometimes like you play something or you watch something or, or you read something that makes you doubt yourself and doubt ev- like what, what what you made maybe relate to it a little bit. So I know this feeling. I know. It, <laughs> and it sucks. It's yeah. all too common, I think, among creatives, uh, yeah. this, this type of feeling. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. why it's awful to play things or listen to things or read things while you're in that you're in production mode because it's so easy to get sidetracked or to compare. And oftentimes you just veer off course when, you know, if you sort of just listen to yourself, you'll, you'll be okay. Yeah. And I think we're as creators, at least that's how I feel. We're really good at distinguishing between things that uh, different types of genres or different types of approaches to games or other media does like when they're different products you can you can understand as a creator oh but i wouldn't compare that to this it's a totally different type of game or like no i mean you can't say well why would you compare Mega Man to doom or something like that and 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 but we can't do it with ourselves mm. like yes. we can't make that distinction that's what i often feel like we can say like okay well this game has a really radical philosophy about, uh, uh, for example, a thousand and one spikes is that is one of my favorite games and it is, is punishingly hard. It's very, very hard. And a lot of people, uh, actually leave really bad reviews on the game because it's so hard, but it's a fair game as far as I'm concerned. But, mm. um, so, and I appreciate that. I love that about it, but, and I think, well, that's exactly the sort of game that it wants to be. It mm-hmm. wants to be that game. And it's, 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 it's brutal and focused about that. But then, when you get the same kind of criticism maybe about your own work that you do, you're not able to separate that from that. So it's much, much harder to do it with your own creations where you feel like, well, I compare myself to something else and that thing is just better. You can't mm. say it's different. It's just better. So I'm mm. worse. Yes. Yeah. We can do it with other people's creations. We can do it just fine. But we somehow we can't do it with our own work, which is kind of crazy. It's so it true. Is. It's totally true. 
I mean, you, you think you think that you understand, basically like you think you understand the whole artistic process. And now that you're much better at looking at things, analyzing them and everything, and then you encounter something and you just hate everything that you did. And it's just awful. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so go on, Ben. What, what else ruined your world? <laughs> <laughs> so many things. Well, I mean, maybe I'll just bring up the game that we have all played. So we can just talk about it. Doom? That's sure, right. Doom? Doom. Oh, yeah. yeah. So do you like oh Doom? God. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, for a quick backstory, I'm a huge Doom fan. Doom is, I probably consider it, it's tough to do this. No, Silent Hill 2 is my favorite game of all time. I say that as, like, academically. Mm. But, like, yes. a, but emotionally and especially as, like, a as like an angry 14-year-old kid, Doom might be my favorite game of all time. It's certainly the most mm. influential game on me, despite the fact that all the big names are sort of all, all big for me because it was, it was the age when, you know, I was getting into my own music. I was f- having access to a PC and eventually got my own PC like a year later or something. Uh, or no, I got it just before Doom came out. So it was something I... Uh, one of the first games I got to hack and like make levels for, uh, it was just, you know, it was like when I was getting into angry music. And so everything just all coalesced <laughs> essentially around that game. Um, so the, the history of the game and, uh, and sort of, you know, where we got to, to get the doom that we got in 2016 is so interesting, but, uh, none of that matters if it's a bad game, but mm-hmm. it's so amazing that everyone I talked to who had these same feelings about, you know, classic Doom as I did, essentially popped Doom in whatever system they were playing. And then within a couple of days, we were all telling each other the same thing was like, holy crap, it's it's Doom. You know, it's I can't mm. I can't believe this. Like no one would have thought it was possible because no one would make a game like this anymore. And this is just not the kind of game you make. And it's not the same, but it feels right. Uh, and. I had some. I definitely had some nitpicks with the game uh, throughout my experience with it, but it's one of those things that over the whole um, uh, time I had with it, those nitpicks started to melt away as I eventually started to sort of see the patterns of what was going on and see the things that it was doing that I wasn't getting out of other games. And, and by the time mm-hmm. it was done, you know, if in that moment you could, I could never have said, oh, you know, I guess the game is okay, but I had some problems with it. At that point, <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, the best. <laughs> Yeah. And and it certainly brought out that sort of irrational love, at least temporarily, uh, that games don't often do because it's so easy to sort of get irritated by one thing or another and, and have a hard time with them. But with Doom, it was just such an emotional experience of like, I can't stop to think about whether I like this thing or not because I'm just so excited and my heart's pumping and, and I just yeah. feel like I'm going to have a heart attack and I'm so, I'm just so like ready to rock out right now. Yeah, it certainly does that well, man. <laughs> Do you have do you have prior experience with like the original Doom, Marco? Because I don't. Oh yeah, of course. Th- th- this these these are the ca- games that I I grew up. I mean, I start I I grew up with with the uh, C sixty four, you know, Commodore sixty four, and then PC games and everything, and the shareware scene that was really big for me. So yes, Doom one, Doom two, Wolfenstein. Um, um, Heretic, Hexen, all of the IT games and later the, uh, and all of those games definitely, I was mm. huge on those all of those old mm. school FPS games so 
So yeah, that was and and I love New Doom. I love mm. Doom 2016 uh, a lot, but I can totally relate to Ben in that sense that I, I uh, and and then Doom 3 came along and yeah, that totally lost me. But that's Doom interesting. 2016. Yeah, but you liked it? Yeah, I I actually really liked Doom 3. Um oh, interesting. And I, I I understand all the reasons why people say they don't like it, but I think those are all the reasons why I did like it. And I think it was honestly okay, the just horror a, aspect. Yeah, I think it was just a different mindset. I, it, I didn't approach it as being, you know, like oh man, I want Doom Two, but in three D. It just mm. it looked different. I liked the lighting. Like I, I thought the technology was so interesting um, about like how they work shadows, and I just found it. It just it was like the right vibe for me. I actually didn't get to play it properly until um, uh, the I played it to completion on the Xbox. And then again on the Xbox 360, because there was actually a okay. really good port of it for the Xbox. Mm. And I think some, uh, a lot, I heard a lot of people say that people who played it on console first liked it more because a lot of the slower aspects at the beginning were cut down on console. And a lot of the level design was redone so that things were a little bit easier to move around with a the controller. They weren't so tight. And it actually changed the pacing and some of the feel of it a little bit. So for me, I loved okay. it. Like I played it through at least twice on Xbox. Once again on Xbox 360, and I played it through again uh, when the BFG edition came out. And I understand everyone's complaints about it. It's just something about that game. I just I'm really into it. Hmm. I think I will get to it one day. I mean, I I did buy it when I was playing Doom, and I was excited about Doom. And uh, I saw a few videos on YouTube. And my my problem with it is that I'm I'm I get really scared of by just playing horror games i mean i, I was um just the other day the resident evil 7 demo came out on steam oh. and i downloaded it and i played it and my brother was next to me and i finished the demo just because my brother was next to me <laughs> and i got a lot of jump scares uh I was, sorry not jump scares from the game i mean i was just easily distracted by anything that pops up on the screen like at one point which is so funny i moved and then like i think there was a light behind me and my shadow moved in front of me, and that gave me a jump scare, and my brother was laughing. So when I look at people playing Doom, I just keep thinking, "Oh my God, I, can't, I just can't, I can't play this." Like it, it, it would just, it would just make me so nervous. And the funny thing is, now of course, Doom, the new Doom, it, it, it's it's not a horror game. It does have some. Like you know, when you go to the gore nests and and you like initiate basically the the arena fight, right? There was a cool documentary just uh, released by um, No Clip, yeah, Danny it... Danny O'Dwyer, I think. Yes, it's mm-hmm. it's fantastic. It's a great documentary. Yeah, um, I loved it, and and um, one of the people who worked on the game, he says that you know w- when you go to that gore uh, uh, nest and like you. Pre- the thing out and like you are initiating the fight and like you want to kick some ass and with me like like every time i'm close to a goddess i keep thinking like oh my god like it's gonna start now like it's like i'm just gonna get my ass kicked but even then like even though i'm not big on on um maybe maybe just uh, the idea of being confronted with all these many enemies is not good on paper when i think about it but what when I play it, it's just so much fun. It's just, I mean, the loop itself, which, which everyone is talking about, like you, you, you shoot enemies, you, you, you're always moving and then they glow and you go for a glory kill and you get health and then, you know, you get your ass kicked and, and 
this keeps keeps on repeating again and again. It's just so mm-hmm. satisfying. Um, I also love the level design. I know that a lot of people kind of don't like the idea of having these uh, big levels of, of of you just walking. Uh, like most of the time, if if you're trying to look for secrets, you'll be just walking and walking and walking. And funny enough, it kind of. I mean, it's not like Metroid Prime, but it kind of gave me the feeling of Metroid of Metroid Prime when I'm like, I'm almost 80% done with the level and I'm just exploring for some of the secrets and I'm just like walking along. There's nothing. It's just like beautiful visuals and I'm just like exploring. And I love that because, uh, I mean, I I tried Battlefield 1 and Infinite Warfare and a few other FPS games and I just didn't like this, this, this extremely scripted way of take our shoot, take our shoot. There's an enemy up there, shoot him and mm-hmm. progress and, and press and repeat a thousand times. Doom was different. It, it, it's just like the whole thing is a big departure from everything that's happening in the shooter jungle right now. And of course, this, this is something that they also talked about in the documentary. They said that they explored, um, they actually, like their first attempt was trying to make a, basically a corridor shooter like Call of Duty and they realized that this is not a good thing for Doom and I, I'm so glad I'm so glad that they spent a lot of time figuring out what would make a good Doom game uh, you know, in this time because it's just a, mm-hmm. it's just a, it's, it's, playing it is just so much fun and thinking about it and I think I played it for something like 40, 45 hours wow. and it was so much fun so much fun I I, I Played through each level at least twice. I look, tried to look at everything. Um, uh, one thing that um, Marco um, told me about, and maybe I will uh, let you talk about it deeply, Marco, which is the upgrade system at the beginning is so incredibly overwhelming because every like like every every weapon has like two or three different upgrades, and like uh, with ev- with every upgrade there are different tiers and. At the beginning, I just kept thinking, like, this is not good. Like, this, this is so overwhelming. I don't know what, what to choose. I don't know what to upgrade. Maybe I'm picking the, so, the, yeah. the wrong decision. And, like, as I progressed with the levels and I kept playing, like, that feeling went away just because, okay, I, 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 I know what I'm doing. I, I know what I like and what I dislike. And, and I'm getting enough points to upgrade and choose whatever. But at the beginning, it's, it's, it was just so, so annoying. And, 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 and it, it almost made me feel like, you know, this might not be a very good shooter, but but uh, as I played on, um, my mind was changed, but I still have that reservation against it. Yeah, I think uh, uh, that's just a piece of AAA, uh, I think, staple that unfortunately found its way into the game that uh, I think could have been uh, simplified or streamlined, or at least it's just a... It's just a way of dispensing these upgrades that I, I think doesn't fit with the style of the game. And I, I personally think that, you know, you, you mentioned the level design and the level design is I mean, they're multiplayer maps. They're like arenas, right? I mean, that's what they are. You you go into those uh, uh, arenas and you have the AIs of all the different monsters and demons and so on. And they uh, they're smart enough to navigate the space. And of course, you're provided with enough uh, uh, mechanics and with enough uh, um, uh, um, helping things, objects in the environment to navigate the space too. Like I, I love those jump hats and all of that stuff, which is super old school in a way and yeah. super self-conscious. But it's 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 cool. It's cool as hell to to be using all of that, and you should really make use of all of those things because that's what makes the the fights really fun. I, I think that's also what the game is. Uh, uh, 
what the game's weakness is at the end of the day. Like I had so much fun and I feel just like Ben that at the end of the day, it's just like, you know, whatever, uh, screw all the little flaws because it's just so much, it's so much fun and such an adrenaline rush. And it's so well designed. That loop is so well designed that who gives a shit. Right. But really, um, the, 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 in in one specific way, and I actually don't agree with this this whole thing about uh, it, oh, it's just like the old Doom games, which it's not. It, it really isn't. You know, mm-hmm. it has it takes some core ideas of uh, the speed, uh, and it's the old Doom games definitely were not really about the horror aspect of it. I think the speed of uh, how you move through the levels, the big open levels, and how you fight uh, demons, it takes all those ideas from the old Doom games, which I think is great, but. The, the old Doom maps were really designed about specific encounters with enemies. And a lot of the times you would encounter just one type of enemy and you would have one type of weapon or or, or you, you would have maybe two weapons to pick from and you would have to use that weapon in, inside of that encounter with the, that specific enemy and they could design... Like a puzzle. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it was, it was really action-heavy and fast-paced, but they could design certain encounters that just doom 2016 doesn't really have because at any given moment you can have any given weapon and you can also um uh enemies aren't really introduced in a way that is uh uh, traditional to to how it happened in 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 doom which is not to say that this is the wrong way but it's something that it's just the downside of this kind of design like you they introduce new demons but in reality, the demons are just thrown into a blender with everything else, right? So uh, mm-hmm. you're in an arena, and they just get added into the mix. And sometimes this can add to the fatigue, especially if you're not really into the exploring aspect, which I really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the encounters, they just get bigger and bigger and more and more. And there's another uh, type of enemy that requires you to slightly change your strategy. But it doesn't really require you to change um, your approach moment to moment. It's just... Like I said, they get thrown into a blender and it's just another arena fight where you fight another type of enemy on top of all the other enemies that you've already fought, which, you know, the the fighting is so much fun that who really cares at the end of the day? But it prevents the kind of design, the careful, specific encounter with one type of demon or with several types of demons in a specific level with a specific weapon which just doesn't happen and that's very undoom like this the game doesn't need to be like doom one or two but mm. that's one of the things that for me introduced a little bit of fatigue towards the end of the game um shouldn't take away from how amazing the game is but those are kind of my criticisms along with the the exploration aspect which i know a lot of people are into but i find it's so diametrically opposed to everything else such a drastic departure that i Mm. It just, and I don't really, I don't really care much for the the all the database entries and all of that stuff. I understand that some people really care about this stuff, like uh, reading the lore and all of that. It doesn't do anything for me. But if you care about all that stuff, unlocking everything, I suppose, then you get something out of that. For me, mm. um, I draw a game like Doom is just all about the 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 the, the, the battle gameplay loop because i think that's where, where it's best yeah i'm awful i i <laughs> i stop whenever they tell me oh you unlock this new tidbit about this weapon like why why am i reading about a weapon why like why this uh uac designed it like i don't care but i'm still reading it like, <laughs> I, I just can't help myself that's so funny um, yeah i mean i mean and, and like even when marco told me like why are you wasting your time like reading all of these like 
I became conscious about what I'm doing, but even then, like, I just couldn't help it. Like, I just want to, I just want to see what, did you enjoy what, what they're saying about, 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 about this bazooka. Did you enjoy reading those things though? Not really. There's nothing, just because, <laughs> no, there's nothing just because wrong it's lengthy. It's, it's like, it has a lot of words in them. And, and I feel and compelled I just, to do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I've never, I'm never one for the codex kind of stuff. Even playing Mass Effect, I remember I would go to, I would ignore all of them until there was a point in the game where I wasn't sure what to do and I felt like doing something, but I didn't know what that was. And I would say, maybe I'll just go check out some of those codex entries. But I would do yeah. them in batches, like every few hours. I think I did yeah. the same thing with Doom. It's funny how I think we're all three of us, uh, like, Mohammed, you're at one extreme. Marco, you're at the other extreme. And I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. in terms of, like, interest in that sort of stuff. Yeah, because I care about the world, but I care about the world that I see, the story that is in the environment, you know, and I like that. And, and, and I like how little there is in Doom. I, I like all that shit with, you know, like the, 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 the protagonist really not giving a crap about the story and all of that. I think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's great that they put that in the game. But mm. I'm still interested, Ben, in, in, I, I know you don't want to talk about it. The flaws because you enjoyed the game so much but i'm still <laughs> interested what your specific nitpicks are about the game sure i honestly you covered quite a lot of them already i think exactly what you said my first uh my first problem was uh, i like you know the intro is super strong it's just sort of chaotic and they get you right into gameplay right away like that once you start having to do with the weapon upgrades i was sort of confused and one point i had throughout the whole game was was it the fifth tier? I forget what it is, but you know, like the ultimate level for every weapon wasn't mm. a wasn't a, a time based unlock or or an upgrade you could purchase. It was always a skill based. Yeah, I have to do it. Yeah, mm. I don't think I got any one of those for any weapon, <laughs> and I think a lot of it was because uh, I wasn't good enough at the game to do so because some of them were for me really tough, obviously. But but I think they doing the challenges to get those um, was a meta game and it required you to stop moving forward in a lot of mm-hmm. cases, you know, in yep. order to get a lot of those things, you would have to say, okay, I need to, you know, like shoot five of this one particular monster with this weapon consecutively. And you'd have to remember, okay, where are those monsters in this level? Like, I don't remember the last time I saw them. Was it this last room? Was it, you know, are they going to respawn? Are they all dead? What, how does that work? And so, yeah, any, I would stop and see, okay, what can I do to get to the, this sort of final level? And anytime, like, I just I just worked with the friction. As soon as there was friction in terms of, I don't know what this means, or I don't know how to do this, I would just say, well, I guess I'm not getting that upgrade. Because the game teaches you to just, you know, like they say in the documentary, just to keep pushing forward. And I love that aspect of it. Because uh, for me, playing classic Doom maps was always about, like, I'm not one of those people who, like, platinum's doom you know what i mean like i don't go and look yeah. for every single secret mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. day every time i play doom one i always miss a certain percentage of secrets in every certain level and it's like to this day i still don't know where certain secrets are like e1 mm. m3 and it's okay because my fun with the game is is about sort of the what to me feels like the right flow it's almost like i don't know mm. it's almost like it's like a little dance that you do when you play because everyone has their own style of playing doom uh, mm-hmm. or, or I guess a shooter of any kind, and Doom 16 did that. I find. Yep. 
I, I I agree, and I I'm I'm just like you. I don't really Doom is not the kind of game where I uh, want to really get every little secret. I think more so in the older games than in Doom 2016 because I think it just slows to such a crawl. If you do that in Doom 2016, that for me it's too much. I I like that fast pace, you know, that mm. Doom 2016 mm. had, and of course you need a bit of a balance, and maybe the balance that they couldn't get through these. Uh, more strategic uh specific uh, encounters that old doom had they try to fill it in with the um the exploration and and, and that sort of thing which to, for me was right. just way too much of a departure from everything else but one other thing i wonder is that uh, did you guys did you guys i know mo i think you played it with a controller right and 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 yeah and uh, did you pl- did you guys play on uh, the regular difficulty or did you play on a higher or a lower one uh, Must I answer this? Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll did, go. Did you play on easy? I played it on normal up until like the last few stages where like it was just basically one arena after another, one arena after another. It it got I felt a little bit tired and yeah, I understand that. Uh, honestly, it was a little bit too hard for me, <laughs> so I changed it yeah. back to easy. <laughs> oh, don't, I, don't! I have no idea how you can do it on a controller. I, I don't know how you could even do any of it on a controller. So I, yeah. I totally respect it, and I got yeah. fatigued too at the end too. Yeah. Marco, did you play it on normal the whole way through, or a hard, harder difficulty? No, no, I played it on the high, the one higher up. Usually, I do that with all uh, it games or FPSs that I know are really uh, well designed or have okay. good, good movement mechanics. I don't remember what it's called. Just the one above normal. Yeah, yeah after up above hurt me plenty. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did the regular mode for a, I can't remember for how many levels and I found myself getting really swamped but I'm also one of those players like I'm just the world's worst video game player in this because it's like I get so emotional <laughs> about stuff if I'm just having an <laughs> off day it just throws everything off so I think I was just getting I always like to make progress in games I get real frustrated when things sort of progress slowly um, or at least in, in a game that's sort of like this which is supposed to be fast so there was one area where I was just feeling overwhelmed or very early and I said I don't, I don't get it. Maybe this, like, maybe I can't play Doom. This is too tough for me. Like, am I this bad at this? Or it's really maybe... tough. And then at some point, I just kind of, you know, looked at my cat shamefully and just made sure my wife wasn't in the room <laughs> to laugh at me. And then I just dialed that difficulty down one level. And I played the, I think I dialed it back up for a couple bits later just to see. But I pretty much played the whole game on uh, the, the regular easy mode. And I felt to me it was like just right where I felt like what I was interested in was, you know, like getting into a firefight, uh, starting to deal with enemies, starting to figure out what the puzzle of that fight was, understanding the environment. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like I was up to speed on that level. When it got to normal, I felt like things took a long time. I felt like Mm -hmm. things were getting just a little bit too aggressive where I was not able to keep up and and sort of problem solve on the fly. So I'm glad I'm glad that they still had those uh, those levels in there, because, I mean, whenever I play classic Doom, it's always always on standard mode. And I used to even be able to do a bunch of it on a little bit uh, a little bit higher up. But for this one, yeah, it just there's like so much. But I think a lot of it, too, is you're especially in those like later fights in hell and whatnot. Yeah. Where, like you say, they're just like insane arenas. Oh my god, the amount of <laughs> yeah. the amount of decision making you have to do per second is mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. off the wall. And I would just get f- physically tired after each one yeah. and just yeah. have to pause, 
maybe go for a little walk and and I wouldn't go through the to the next area because I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to mentally like be prepared for whatever's coming next and because the music yeah. is just screaming in your ears the whole time and everything is so loud and, <laughs> and it's it, like yeah. up to yeah. 11 constantly it was and you played on on console too yeah I played on PS4 okay mm. So I'm not really, I didn't really ask that to, to make fun of anyone or anything. I can totally relate. In fact, I was really, really tempted during the later levels of hell to knock it down to the regular difficulty because I can, it just, you just get fatigued. But mm. I just think that the reason why I ask is because to me, it's a mystery how the regular casual video game player can play this game. Mm. Yes, it's, like, it's very difficult. I mean, we're good at this. And I mean, I want to tell you, I, I didn't play on regular, but I died a lot. I died a lot, a lot. And I like that. I don't mind that. You know, I don't mind dying a lot. Mm. And I got better and better. Mm. And I enjoyed that frustration. Uh, uh, so I, I stuck with it to the end with the higher difficulty. But I I, I wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I didn't do that because I was good at the game. I died. I just died like many, many times. So for to me, um to me, it's a mystery how people aren't overwhelmed with all the triple A bullshit anyway, with all the noise, all the uh, the clutter, uh, over information, and 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 the huts and all that stuff. So with Doom, it's like just the sheer difficulty of it. I don't. I haven't. Are is there really? Are there really that many? That many gamers, millions of gamers out there that can play on that level. It's just mind blowing to me, and I think it's kind of awesome. And it's awesome that a game can do that. I know people talk about Dark Souls and stuff like that, but Dark Souls is different. Dark Souls is more methodical, right? And it's mm-hmm. more strategic, and you can. It's just it's maybe a more of a slower grind, but Doom is like ruthless. I find it's just uh, yeah. it, you just die and you keep dying and dying in a match. You might not even know why. What's going yeah. on? Yeah, and I mean, at least with Dark Souls, like you go in and you expect, like, like right from the beginning, like the game kills you, and you expect to just die a lot, like because it's <laughs> like this is what you understand about the game. But with mm-hmm. Doom, like I didn't know, like I didn't realize that the game is actually hard until I actually got to play it. Because like this is usually not what people are talking about; they're just talking about how awesome and how fun it is. But when I was playing it, I, and you know, right after I played the Titanfall, I played the Call of Duty Battlefield, and just. Doom was just something else. Like, like on easy, I, I, I thought it was easy, but on 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 uh, the, the the standard difficulty, it was just at times it was just way too tough for me. And I like that. Yeah, I love that. Uh, we, we we don't get enough of that, and we don't get enough of a lot of monsters coming at you and just ripping you a new one. <laughs> so that felt yeah. good. But it, it's definitely interesting and much different than everything out there. Absolutely. Yeah, I th- just that the fact that a game can be released like this today and it's a mainstream, it's a triple A game, as triple A as it gets, and it can do this, I think that's amazing. Yeah. And one thing to note is that when I built the PC, like I I didn't know which game to start with. I mean I was so excited. There are a lot of games, but I I I started with Doom and this was in August. Doom already had a lot of patches. Now it performed wonderfully and uh, I had a like I I bought a monitor that play games up to 165 frames and uh, wow. my my GPU was already pushing the game up to 140 120 frames. So like it it was just the perfect start for a new PC because Never had a crash, never had any problem. The game was always performing beautifully and um, it was such a great start to get back to just gaming regularly because everything about it felt just almost right. Like almost everything about it felt just right. And 
Yeah. Except for that controller you were holding in your hands, of course. Yeah. It's kind of a strange thing to do when you're on PC, but you'll learn eventually. You're, you'll come around and understand. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I, I, I tried to play it with a mouse, like when you, when you basically just yelled at me for playing with a controller. And, yell at um, me. <laughs> well, like yell at me, uh, metaphorically. Uh, in a I chat application, you, I think that was yeah. That was it. Um, <laughs> but I just thought, okay, let's start. I, I, I think I started trying to play it with a mouse when I was like maybe seventy percent into the game. So oh, yeah. I can't, mm, I can't. No. So I, I tried to play a hard reset and um, Wolfenstein with a mouse, and I just um, I, I need a lot of practice. But one funny thing is that. Even like even in Mirror's Edge, a game that's not about shooting, sometimes I have a lot of trouble trying to get a kill. And you know, I just I just move my hand to the mouse and just shoot and done. And and I just get get a headshot immediately. I I, I get what I want to do like the minute I put my hand on a mouse. But for my left hand, when it comes yeah. to the keyboard, it's just too difficult for me. But hopefully, I will I will I will reach a stage where I can just play FPS games with a mouse and a keyboard. For the time being, it's just going to be a stupid controller <laughs> and being a stupid console gamer. <laughs> um, okay, so obviously there are a lot of games we want to talk about. Like we have a giant list of games, but or massive list of games. I don't know, English. But I think all of us have some place to be. And um, we didn't really expect to be just talking so much about this, but I mean, apparently we're really enjoying this. So what we're going to do is um, we're going to wrap it up right now and we're going to release uh, like an ex- like basically part two of this uh, of this discussion next week, um, which is like it, it will have no soundtrack discussions. It's just going to be the continuation of this like uh, uh game of the year kind of stuff we have a lot of games we want to talk about so instead of just uh assigning one minute for each one we just decided to um cut this into uh two parts um so this has been a really fun diversion from what we originally wanted to do with the wavelength podcast i hope you're enjoying this we unexpectedly talked a lot about what we what we're like doing here at Brave Wave. Um, and I'm just excited to, for all of us to have a venue to just talk about the games that we're playing because just, I mean, 140 characters are never enough and I don't want to open a blog and I don't want to write. I mean, writing is, is the most difficult job in the world as everyone else uh, says. So um, I hope this is a good comeback episode. Let us know what you think. Um, I'm RoboCake. Uh, on Twitter, Marco is at Monomirror, and uh, Ben is... I forgot, Ben. What's at, your... I'm at Benjamin Rivers. Perfect. And uh, you can leave your feedback either by replying to any of us, by mentioning uh, at Brave Wave Music, or by emailing wavelength at bravewave.net. And see you next week. <laughs>